can't add to Bijan's introduction, um, but it's great that we get to close out this series that we've been going on throughout the summer, this journey through the life of David, a man after God's own heart. Um, and as we begin, will you, will you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for uh, the, the privilege of being able to observe the life of uh, King David. Um, and we thank you for all the ways that you've been teaching us through it. And we pray this morning um, that you might, by your spirit, at work within us, help us discover freedom in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Amen. Amen. One night in London, famous playwright Noel Coward pulled an interesting prank. He picked, uh, he picked out 20 of the most famous, the most celebrated men in the city, um, and he wrote to them all the same identical note. And the note simply read, everyone has found out what you're doing. And if I were you, I would get out of town. Apparently, the very next day, every single one of those men left the city. So why, why did that prank work? The simple answer is that they all had a guilty conscience. In fact, they were all des in desperate need of, of getting rid of that sense of guilt that we so often, all of us, often carry. But it's tricky. Perhaps some, like some of the recipients of this playwright's prank, we might actually be innocent, but sometimes there might actually be a time when we are feeling that guilt, and it is, it is in fact a guilt that is real. All of, us, all of us will experience some kind of guilt in some shape or form. So how are we to understand it? Is this just a, a kind of a subjective emotion um, that requires therapy? Or is it perhaps something, something more real that we need to be reckoning with? Now, acknowledging some of you might be here this morning thinking, oh great, I decide to come along to church and they're talking about guilt, typical Christianity. Because for so many people, to think of Christianity is to think of walking around with some regressive outlook uh, left over from the Middle Ages and, and permanently feeling guilty. We're going to get to that, but it simply is not true that our modern world has solved this problem of guilt that we all feel. In fact, in this modern, this digital age, it might actually be amplified. Therapists, educators, voices on social media, they're all trying to address and deal with this guilt, this problem of guilt, but it's, but it's not worked. And it's an issue that really does need to be targeted, does need to be reckoned with, because if you look below the surface of a lot of our anger, our anxiety, our boredom, our frustration, our insecurity, often it's motivated by guilt. Maybe, maybe you recognize that this morning. Maybe if you look in your heart, you recognize that what's driving you in your achievements, in your relationships, in your identity, it's very often guilt. So, how am I to understand guilt? And how can I get relief from guilt? They're the questions we're going to be thinking about this morning. And there are few better places to help us with this issue than Psalm 32. 
It's written by the great King David. And though this psalm deals with some heavy issues, it's actually got a triumphant and, and, and hopeful tone. After all, David is speaking from his personal experience. Psalm 32 helps us in three ways. And if you're a note taker, these are my three points. It helps us to understand the problem of guilt, embrace the practice of confession, and finally experience the promise of freedom from guilt. That's what we're learning from David this morning. The problem of guilt, the practice of confession, and the promise of freedom. So, first, what is guilt? Guilt is not just uh, the, the weight that comes from knowing we've done something wrong. Um, but it's at the same time, it's, it's this feeling that we are actually liable. We actually deserve punishment for it. So, as we come to this practice of confession, it's vital that we understand guilt properly. Because it is actually possible to feel guilty when you are totally innocent. And it is also possible to feel innocent when we are in fact guilty. It's the difference between what we call true and false guilt. False guilt can come from lots of different sources, from ourselves, from culture, or it can come from the enemy. Our own conscience can sometimes be misinformed. Does anybody else sort of stop and check yourself when you're going through the doors of the supermarket and the alarm goes off? Uh, or, and don't even get me started when my parents use my full name. Other times, we have, uh, as we've experienced so often in recent years, the culture around us adds to our guilt over its ever-changing standards. If I don't align with whatever particular cultural opinion um, is being sort of preached at the moment, then I will feel guilt. And then we also have what the Bible, uh, the Bible tells us is an enemy. His name is Satan. He's called the accuser. Sometimes he's going to bring up things that we actually should be feeling true guilt about. But other times, he's going to be telling us lies because that is who he is. He was a liar from the beginning. So it is important to understand the difference between false guilt and, and true guilt. So how do we do that? How do we know if the guilt that we are experiencing is really something that does need to be dealt with? And here, in Psalm 32, God tells us that God is, David tells us that God is the standard by which we measure true guilt. True guilt is a response to something called sin, something we need to understand as we look to understand our guilt. Psalm 32 is categorized as one of the penitential psalms. There's seven of them. And they, these are seven psalms that jump straight into talking about sin. Most commentators agree that David composed this psalm after his abuse of Bathsheba and the death of Uriah to which that sin led. And I want you to notice this morning that there are actually three different categories of guilt that he mentions within the first two verses. There is relational guilt, there is legal guilt, and there's moral guilt. David ransacks the dictionary to describe it. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. The first word is a Hebrew word, and it's translated transgressions. It means rebellious self-assertion. Transgression in many ways, um, in the ancient Hebrew, it's a relational term. 
it carries the sense of a breach of trust. If you've ever had someone betray you, or you've ever betrayed someone else, that's transgression. Someone's broken their promise. You've broken your word. An African theologian many years ago called Augustine wrote in his book, Confessions, and, and he remembers a time when he and his friends were 16 and they broke into a pear orchard and, and they stole and ate some pears. And he was reflecting afterwards, wondering why he'd done it, particularly when he wasn't actually hungry and he didn't even like pears. So why did he do it? He came to the conclusion that the reason he wanted to steal the pears from the pear orchard was because it was forbidden. Somebody had said, don't go into the pear orchard. So he wanted to go into the pear orchard. If nobody had said, don't go in, he wouldn't have wanted to go in. He realized that at the very core of his being, there's an impulse um, that was telling him, nobody tells me what to do. Nobody tells me how to live my life. This means that there's something deep within us, and it's called sin. It's that self-assertiveness, that hatred of any limitations on our own desires that makes us break stuff. It makes us break rules, break promises, break relationships. The Bible tells us that we've all transgressed. We've all broken relationship with the God who never breaks his promises. See, we must understand that at this, that, that is the heart of this issue when it comes to guilt. We must see that transgression, first and foremost, before it's ever a transgression against the people around us, it's a, a transgression against God. And that's the very heart of the problems we see in our own lives and in the wider world. David moves on to use the word sin, which is more or less a legal term. This word in Hebrew means to miss the mark or to kind of veer off the path. It's another way to understand our guilt-causing sin. I suppose that the term legal kind of makes it sound a little bit cold, but this is far from what the Bible tells us about God's law. God's law, it's his very character, his, his nature. It's his best plan for the flourishing of our lives. His law is the target. It's the path that we're meant to be walking on. I do a bit of hiking from time to time, um, and I like paths. Paths are easy to walk on. They're, they're flat, they've been leveled, they've been cleared, um, and they're, they're easy to walk on. But if you go off the path, then you're in the nettles, the weeds. You can't see where you're going. You might trip and fall in an unseen pothole. If it's really bad weather, you might get lost. You might wander off a cliff. Exaggerated, but this, this idea helps us to understand a little bit more what sin is. It's the standard by which we ought to live our lives. And when we fall short of it, we contradict it and then are condemned by it. So David mentions transgression when we've broken relational trust. He mentions sin when we've missed the mark, fallen short of God's standard. And then there's a third category. The word for sin in verse 2, it's actually a different Hebrew word to the one in verse 1. And it carries more of a moral meaning. It means evil or twisted. Our translation has the word sin again. Some, have, some translations have iniquity. Some even have guilt. It means, it describes the twisting and corrupting of standards. After all, there, there is a boundary. There is a boundary on how we ought to live our lives. There's a standard that we learn from God's law, and we're meant to live into that. 
There is a straight path that God has set out in his word. And when we veer from that, we commit this moral sin. We're, we're guilty. Now, of course, this, this is something that King David knows very well from the agony that he goes on to describe. And although described as a man after God's own heart, David was also a man who committed great sin and had great failures. The background for Psalm 32 is one of those great failures of David's life. As a king, he betrays his authority and takes advantage of a woman called Bathsheba. King David abuses his power in sexual, in civil, and in spiritual ways. David sinned greatly against God, against the people that he was called to lead and to serve. He took advantage and violated Bathsheba. He murdered his friend. He had betrayed his army, imperiled his nation. And then he attempts to hide his actions, to bury that guilt. But he couldn't. And as our psalm shows, David was overwhelmed. He was traumatized by his sin. The guilt and the shame pressed him hard, as it should have. And that's what begins to make sense of the next few verses, because after his opening declaration, David goes on to a description of the feeling of guilt. And when I read it, I resonate. Do you? Especially if you are like me, and there have been times when you try and ignore, you try and hide, you try and cover up your guilt. Maybe you've experienced that. David turns in verse 3 to a personal testimony. Why, why, does he, why does he do that? Friends, he's describing the destructive effect of what happens when you don't deal with the wrong in your life. Look at what he says, verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Now, after this summer we can all relate to the feeling of our strength being sapped in the heat. But listen to the words that he's using there. Weakness, bones wasting away. David is describing something that's much worse than a British heat wave, believe it or not. He describes it as a burden. It's, it's a weight. Your hand was heavy on me. He's describing this discomfort that's actually just an awareness of God's conviction. And then in his attempt to hide it and bury it, he then goes on to describe exhaustion because it is exhausting to try and cover up our guilt. When it comes to real and true guilt before God, we wish that he would ignore it. We wish that he'd pass it by, but he will not. He cannot. He is righteous and he is just and he loves us. Remember, his law is his revealed will, his plan for our good, and his hand will be heavy on us, that he might awaken us to the reality of that sin. In other words, friends, God will never allow you to feel good about feeling guilty because he loves you and he wants the best for you and from you. God is not primarily concerned with the therapeutic experience of dealing with guilt. When it's true guilt, it's meant to act as a signpost and say, this is something that we need to be dealing with. Now, everyone is trying to do something about the problem of their guilt, their sin. And there are many ways that we, like David, try and deal with it in, in the wrong way. We, we can feel guilt and we know that there's something that we're doing wrong, um, whether it's lying, whether it's 
sexual sin, whether it's abuse of substance or abuse of power, whatever it is, when we feel that conviction, um, and then we, we start to think, how can I deal with it? And we, we deal with it in the wrong way. For example, some of us medicate. We distract ourselves through experience or through substance. We simply just numb away the heaviness of the sin to distract us from the weight of that guilt. Are you medicating when it comes to guilt? Another way is blame shifting. We say, yeah, I know I've done wrong, but, you know, like, I couldn't, they started it. And we try and shift the blame to, to someone else. Or we compare ourselves to others we, who have fallen short. We say, well, I know I did wrong, but what, what they did was, was some, I, even I'm disgusted at what they're doing. You know, I, I do think that that's one of the reasons why we like the story of David so much. Because we see David, in David, someone who has done much worse than we ever have. And so we think that we're okay by comparison. And then there's one more way where we try, uh, and we try and deal with sin and guilt, and that's through religion, through religiosity. It's this idea that, yeah, I, I know I've done wrong, but I'm going to go out and do like 40 million good deeds, and that'll make it okay. Do we recognize any of that? I don't know which you're most tempted to try. I feel like in my life, I've, I've tried them all, um, but they don't work. And this is what David is teaching us through his experience. After all, this is based on David's own past experience of guilt through his sin. He knew the problem of guilt. So what do we need to do? This psalm teaches us to embrace the practice of confession. David is taking us on a journey, one that definitely does begin with this initial resistance to admitting sin, but his words then turn a corner and highlight the importance of the practice of confession because confession leads to the freedom of forgiveness. Friends, the bridge between the burden of our sin and the blessing of forgiveness is confession. The turning point is actually the moment when David pulls back the curtain on his prayer life and confesses. Look at verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. This is so important, friends. So what is confession? Two things. Firstly, confession is agreeing with God. If the standard by which we measure true guilt is God, his character, his will, his standard, um, then confession is agreeing with God. And notice here, David does not hold back. And the consequence is that he experiences incredible healing. See, this is exactly what confession is. It's acknowledging to see what God already sees. David's prayer was not general. It wasn't a God, I kind of need a little help with this right now. It was very specific. And it's not informing God about something that God doesn't already know. He's agreeing with God about something that God already does know. Friends, please see that this is personal. David takes personal responsibility for it. And this is so vital. Just looking at the sins of others and comparing ourselves or, or shifting the blame, it doesn't remove 
our own responsibility to deal with what we have done wrong before God and before others. So notice David's confession is personal and, and so should ours be too. His confession is also specific. Notice that in the, the, the same words that David uses in verses one and two, they're actually here as well, sin, iniquity, and transgression. And once he does that, the cover-up is over. The release is immediate. Because confession doesn't just mean agreeing with God, it means receiving from God. And this is huge. Hear this today. Confession to God is key to experiencing the blessings of God. Look what happens, and look how radical this passage is. In what took eight lines before to describe the feeling of the weight of sin, if you, you look back at verse one, it's now all reversed in, this, in, in verse one. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And we need to hear that. We need to know this, because it enables us to confess our sin, knowing what will happen when we do. And, and what will happen? What, what is that? I want you to know that, we, that God's forgiveness, we feel it immediately. God forgives completely and God forgives graciously. It's what he does. When you confess your sin, you need to know that we experience God's forgiveness immediately. There is no text in the entire Bible that says God will forgive you eventually. We need to, yeah, we need to realize we'll be forgiven immediately. That's what it says. God also forgives completely. David held nothing back. And so there was, there was no area where he was not forgiven. God does not say, do you know what? I'm going to forgive you like 60% of your sins, but the other 40, that's on you to sort. He, he doesn't say that. So we experience God's forgiveness immediately. God forgives completely and he forgives graciously. God's response to our confession is not punishment or shame. It's a gift, the gift of forgiveness. He doesn't make you pay him back. We're going to stop here for a second because how, how can David say that? How can David say, say this so boldly? Was there any indication, particularly in the Old Testament with its sacrifices and its rituals, that, that God was going to simply forgive sin like that? This amazing statement is, is one that is utterly outrageous for David to, to make. We need to hear that this morning. How can a holy and righteous God um, how, how, that forgives that has that immediate sense of forgiveness, that, that complete forgiveness, that gracious forgiveness for someone like David, someone like me, someone like you. And friends, this is the truth of the gospel. You see, David trusted in a promise that God had made many years before he was even born. And the gospel is our faithful God's perfect and only answer to the problem of our sin and, and guilt. The gospel is that God sent the Son to live on our behalf, to die on a cross, to make the payment that our sin deserves so that we could have the blessing that his life deserves, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be set free from that weight of sin and guilt that clings to us. This showcases not just the incredible character of God, but also the finished work of Jesus Christ. We can be forgiven. 
There is no reason that you should not confess, knowing that what God, God has done for us through Jesus on the cross. Then, having confessed and experienced this for himself, David now turns to others and encourages people like you, people like me. Verse 6, he says, In light of all these things, in light of all that we know about God, let all who are godly pray to you at a time when you may be found. David is saying, don't hold back. Don't resist this sense of conviction. He wants everyone to know and to embrace this practice of confession. And notice there's a couple of reasons for his urgency and, and for, the, for our urgency even today. The first is today is the day of opportunity. Why not today? While we're alive, while we still have breath in our lungs and a pulse, confess so that you might be forgiven. It says elsewhere in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. So why the urgency? One reason is that you have that opportunity today. There is nothing stopping you. I believe that while he may be found, refers to the conviction by, by the Holy Spirit that we need to pray to him. And in that sense, it may grow intense, but it also might grow cold, dependent on whether we, whether we respond, whether we pray or whether we rebel. When God prompts people to deal with their sin in their lives, that is the time for finding him. So friends, don't just listen to God's prompting and then move on to dis distract yourself and move on so quickly. That's our, that's our other reason. And the third reason for this urgency um, and is calling us to deal with our guilt and co confess it is because when we confess, we will experience the protection that God desires to give us. He says that all of the troubles that we'll experience um, all of the difficulties that we'll face in life through confessing to God and, and not running from him or concealing or covering things up, burying that guilt in confessing to God, coming clean, coming to and receiving that forgiveness, you begin to experience that, that protection that he desires to give. David is saying that the troubled waters of life will not ultimately consume you and the waters of judgment will not sweep you away. How can he say that? Because, friends, Jesus Christ on the cross already took the waters of judgment that you and I deserve. Whatever life throws at you, we, we know that we can confess our sin, we can, we can receive God's forgiveness, but also receive his protection and from that one thing that could ultimately destroy us, and that is our sin. So first, we need to understand the problem of that guilt, the problem of sin. Secondly, we need to embrace the practice of confession. And thirdly, we need to experience the promise of freedom. I love this because in God's economy, freedom follows forgiveness. There are powerful changes ongoing changes um, that will happen in the life of any man or any woman who trusts in the Lord. Let's just say your whole life revolves around your career. You, you worship your career almost. 
and then one day you, you miss the mark? Will your career forgive you? Or your whole life revolves around a romantic relationship? Your whole sense of well-being will revolve around that person always being forgiving towards you. More than that, are they going to be able to empower you to go through every single day with just a guilt-free, clean conscience? No. So many of us have tried that, though. God is the true standard. He is the only one who is able to forgive you because he is the only one that we've ultimately sinned against. But he's also the one that will protect us and empower us even when we fail. I mean, when will your career do that? Can you imagine um, an induction for a job that they bring you in and they say, hey, welcome to this company. When you mess up, we're going to surround you with love. Everything's going to be okay. Um, And it doesn't even matter, even if you don't get to work on time or don't finish that project, that's not going to happen. This would never happen in in, in this kind of context, in our work. But, But with God, it will. And that's what makes this gift, this blessing of forgiveness, so outrageous. Now, to those people who are groaning inwardly or maybe outwardly when you realize that we were going to be talking about guilt and sin, I I understand that it might feel like it was an oppressive burden to be talking about those things in church on Sunday morning, but to not be given that sense of freedom that is in God That sounds like an oppressive burden to me. See, the beauty of the gospel is is it's not just the power to forgive, but it's also the power um, of a freedom that means you become even stronger than than you were before. Let me show you from this psalm some ways that you can be free, ways that you can be stronger as you confess and you receive that forgiveness. First, you become bold. Look at verse 7. David says, you've become a hiding place for me. You deserve, you've preserved me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. David has like got his headphones in and he's got a soundtrack around him all day and it's all songs of uh, just being set, about being set free by God. That's what soundtrack he's living in. God's nearness gives you boldness. We can say that I'm not going to hide from God. I'm going to hide in God. As we confess, we receive this forgiveness to become bold. Secondly, you become teachable. Look at verses 8 and 9. David is teaching us. I will instruct you and teach you in the ways you should go. I'll counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they'll not come to you. Friends, this lesson is important. It's not actually your instincts, like the horse and the mule, that will guide you. It's, it's not your human nature. It's instruction from God. If you want to understand that grace of God, you need to constantly uh, turn to him and, and receive it. And then, by, by its nature, you will become more and more the kind of person who turns to God quickly and easily, not fighting against him. To confess means that you realize your need for guidance, your your need for that instruction. Friends, confession keeps you near. It keeps you teachable. I mean, think about it. Which person would you rather spend time with? A person who's always defensive and um, self-absorbed or a person who will be quick to admit their, their problems? Oh, yeah, thanks for pointing that out. I probably really needed to sort that one out there. Of course you'd choose that person. 
So confession makes you bold. It, it keeps you teachable. And, and thirdly, you become more secure. Verse 10, many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the ones who trust in him. How can we be sure? How can we be sure of all this stuff I've been saying? How can we be confident of this teachability and this boldness and this forgiveness? David says it's the unfailing love of God, a love that will never fail you, a love that you will never receive from your career, from your spouse or partner. That's a promise of God. Confession is not about beating yourself up. It's about trusting in the promises of God. It's about being fully seen and fully loved. And then lastly, full of joy. Verse 11, rejoice in the Lord. Be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. How can you have that much joy? How can you be that confident? Tim Keller, uh, commenting on this, says, the happiest people in the world are those who not only know that they need to be forgiven, but also have experienced it. I think that's true. Personally, I know that to be true. Friends, this is not a call from David to, to people who have earned that place, to have earned that place before God, but it's a call to those who have trusted in the grace and the unfailing love of God to heal, to forgive, to restore, to make things new. So how do we confess? How do we receive this forgiveness, this uh, freedom from the weight of guilt, this boldness, joy, power for real change, Super practically, it means saying to God, God, I'm, I'm sorry. I've messed up. I've missed the mark. Help me feel this freedom that you promise us because I can't live any differently unless you help me. How could David write about such heavy, um, weighty themes with such a hopeful tone? Because there's another set of three words in that first couple of verses. Against the first set transgression, sin, and then the other word for sin, there are three hopeful words in this psalm. God himself will forgive, cover, and count our sin no more. And this, this is the good news, anticipated by David and others in the Old Testament and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. On the cross, our sins were forgiven. Because of the cross, Jesus covered our sin, and by our faith in Jesus' finished work, he no longer counts our sin against us. Friends, I say this because the, the, our guilt, the, the only sin that will truly leave you crippled is the sin left in the dark. Whatever area of, of your life that God, by his spirit, is prompting you about now, stop trying to find all kinds of excuses, comparing yourself to others or, or looking other ways, just own it, knowing that the work of Jesus is so full and so complete that if you confess, even today, you will be forgiven. You will be forgiven immediately, completely, and graciously. Jesus is the hiding place. He is the place where we find refuge. He's the place where we find shelter. He's the place where we should run to. So run to him today. If you are not yet a Christian, Put your faith and your trust in him today. There will be people at the back in our response time who would love to pray with you. And if you are, don't bury your sin. As we respond now, confess it in your heart. Experience 
the freedom and restoration and power and joy and boldness and teachability that is offered to you. And then sing all the louder in praise and thanksgiving. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this incredible gift. We thank you this incredible good news. And we pray, Lord, keep us, keep us people who will be quick to turn to you and be filled with all of these things that you promise us. Help us to tangibly yeah, experience that freedom of forgiveness now and let us sing out all the louder in praise because you are worthy.